<laughs> welcome, welcome everybody back to another episode of the Handsome Homebuyer Podcast. My name is Charles, aka the Handsome Homebuyer, aka Captain Permit, aka El Judío Maravilloso, aka the soon-to-be 2020 LLS Man of the Year. A lot going on in Handsome Land. We have an awesome guest today, which I want to go over. Obviously, everybody knows or they're going to be knowing that we have an educational event for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, not-for-profit, for the benefit of one time only, we are putting in an unbelievable group of people together, eight, nine speakers, the best of best in what they do from fix and flip, one to four family, buy and hold, out of state commercial development, out of state multifamily, wholesaling, marketing, tax liens, tax deeds, non-performing notes. You want to learn about it. You want to make money at it. We have the best of the best coming in May. I think it's the 17th. I'm not 100% sure, but in May, you'll be there. We will set everything up, put it all out. Stay tuned for dates and times to follow. Maddie, do you know who you can always rely on in a jam with the permit business? Building departments, anything? Lay it on me. Captain Permit. Captain Permit. 516-513-8838. If you need plans, you need permits, if you need anything permit-related, decks, sheds, interior alterations, legalizations, new construction, commercial, you name it, we do it. We got the most handsome crew in the business. 516-777. Sold if you have a house that smells like cat pee, is dated from the 1960s, has six inches of mold on the wall, human waste floating past the basement steps. I'm obviously the handsome home buyer. I'm quick. I'm easy. I'm a good time. I want to buy it. If God created it and it can't be moved, I want to buy it. 516-777. Sold. All right, mystery guest. So I am of the opinion that your network is your net worth. And when you first get into real estate, you there's, there's things that come up, there's jams that you're in. It's just, it's just constant. Being in business in general, especially real estate, is just a shit storm 24-7. Everybody wakes up with a plan, but is there anything you think you can do other than hold on and ride this thing, this wave of crazy every day? You got another thing coming. This particular gentleman is one of those people that everybody needs to know. He's, he's like a mad scientist of sorts when it comes to short sales, tax liens, tax deeds, evictions, just the ins and outs of real estate from a legal standpoint, from a securitization standpoint, from a high finance standpoint. But the very cool thing about him, unlike many other people, is like when I meet people that are high finance that have these crazy degrees from NYU and you know this and that, they understand the high finance portfolio aspect of real estate, but they don't have like the boots on the ground, right. real world kind of gritty experience that you have. The granular going from door to door in Brownstone, Brooklyn. And exactly. I mean, you can't teach a lot of that. And that's that's kind of one of the interesting things I found is is people lack the practical experience of things because they've never really done it on that, that kind of granular level of, of going through each specific deal and looking at it from a pragmatic perspective as opposed to the way it should work. So he is going to be teaching at the event. He's going to be going over tax liens, notes, tax deeds, notes as far as non-performing and performing, and there might even be a little bit of auction talk in there. Went to law school, but did not officially become a lawyer. He decided to use his powers for good. Jordan Kyrick. Did I get it right? Yeah. Yes. Welcome. Good to have you, man. Thank you. I'm pumped Thank up for me. this. Yeah. Because you know all the cool shit that everybody, including myself, wants to know, but but doesn't know. When well, it comes you. to tax liens, tax deeds, um, evictions, which are all these. This is all big talk right now, obviously. Um, you know, landlord tenant laws. The note market has gotten huge. A lot of people right. that used to do fix and flip are getting into the NPL space as a way to acquire. It's just. You know, it's just getting very, very big, and a lot of people don't know about it. Right. And it's also expanding to a point where I think that right now the pricing for these things is a little bit out of sync with mm -hmm. the underlying collateral value. And I think a lot of intelligent people, as I was kind of mentioning to you before off camera, are sitting on the sidelines right now waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, because obviously the, the distress purchasing has kind of expanded so much because money's cheap and everyone really wants to get into trying their hand at flipping a house. Um, but the prices people are paying for deals now is just not sustainable. And the question is, at what point do these things go bad? Where do they go bad? And how do you ultimately profit from when they do go bad? 
So you've um, you've been in the game for 10 years. You've been in real estate for 10 years. Just kind of curious to know for myself and for everybody out there, a little bit of the background. You're Jewish. Amazing. Gold star for you. <laughs> High five. Where'd you grow up? Uh, um, South Shore, Long Island. Oh, yeah? Where? Uh, uh, Bullen, originally. Okay. Uh, went to high school in the five towns. Your neighbors? Uh, yep. Went to high school in the five towns, undergrad in Boston, and law school back in New BU? York. Nope. Brandeis. Oh, yeah? My sister went to BU. Great school, man. Hung out a lot of BU kids. Brandeis wasn't my favorite. It's like yeah. a little mini New York of all kids yeah. that's clean. The food's not as good, but it's, it's awesome. It was a good time. I guess it was a good time for four years. I couldn't stay there beyond that. So decide to, you, you were pre-law? Uh, philosophy and economics. Okay. Decide you always wanted to be a lawyer? No, I just wanted to lay the real world for about three years. So just Dude, went you. and uh, one thing led to another. Got involved when I was in law school with an attorney who did like uh, bundling of uh, hard money. This was back when it was like 16, 24. Okay. Um, so he did a lot of bundling his own money with family and friends money. Uh, put it all together. Did you and say then, 16 to 24 yeah, that's, percent? That's what hard money was back even 10 years ago. 16, 16 was prime with a 24 default rate and usually about two points to extend the term another year. Wow. Yeah, and it came, it came down incrementally over time. I mean, listen, even around 2012, it was like 14, 14 and 18. Wait, you, so know? you were exposed to this in, in college? When I was in law school, I was working for this guy. Okay. Yeah, so so kind of one thing led to another and that kind of segued into, into buying a bunch of MPLs and then obviously raise more money and kind of scaled it from there. So for those of the for those listening who don't know what an MPL is, what what is the definition of an MPL? Non-performing loan, which can take any 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 format of a number of different types of loans. But but for purposes of this conversation, my core was always residential um, one to four. So those that's that's kind of a standard home underwriting up to up to four units. Okay. Um, and and a residential property. So uh, a lot of FHAs, a lot of um, ARMs from back in the day, a, a smorgasbord of the products that were like 2001, 2007 originations. Hmm. I, uh, it's just interesting because I, I meet a lot of people that are very, very smart like yourself. They go to law school and then when they get out of law school, they're like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Like I often wish that I had that education because I feel like it just makes life so much easier. Yeah, I, I, it's, you know what, it's kind of a miss. Listen, if you like anything, it, it's it's enjoyable. Um, I'm sure I could find niches within practicing. If I had gone that route, I'm kind of very content with this. Um, and I also kind of like the fact that it's something a little bit more tangible, the bricks and mortar kind of thing, for lack of a better phrase. It gives you a little bit more satisfaction when you're able to kind of look back at the end of the day and say, oh, that, as opposed to something that's a bit more amorphous, like a piece of paper. So during law school, you worked for a hard money lender. Uh, an attorney who his his core business was kind of doing niche outside uh, title company work. Okay. Um, and as a side business, or probably fifty percent of his practice, he would pool his money and uh, that of family and friends and and originate these hard money loans. And that's back in the day when, again, it was sixteen and twenty four, and he was the lender of last resort, pulling people out of deals which ultimately i mean they defaulted a lot and frankly the name of the game was you know loan to own um and if somebody this paid, was post crash this post, was immediate, just immediately immediately post crash immediately post crash so, this was oh nine oh nine yeah oh nine well i first 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 started working with him and doing deals outside of law school in august of oh nine so this is right after when they hadn't even figured out any of the paperwork from all these loan sales and what the hell they were going to do with them so essentially, the, the business model was, and I know a lot of people that do this, where they're they're lending at at the highest rates legally possible, and if you pay, amazing, and if you don't, you you get the property. Yeah, win win, and that you're going, you know, sixty five LTV or fifty five LTV, and, and these thing these were things that, frankly, because of property appreciation, if nothing else, even if the even if the borrower is in default on their prior loan, and you refi them out, you can still get it done at sixty LTV, yeah. because you know Brooklyn at that point properties had appreciated so much. Yeah, I mean, I guess at that point you can. I mean, you could. The just... foreclosure gets messy. Believe me, a judge isn't happy if you're foreclosing that scenario when you're taking them out of a shitty loan and putting them in a shittier loan. But, you know, what it? So what did you? What did you do for him at that time? And how did this kind of? I was I was just to... working for him doing doing miscellaneous drafting, almost clerking in law school, and then okay. kind of after that, one thing one thing segued into another, for lack of a better explanation. Um, brought him some notes, met with his existing partners in the hard money platform, and they started funding them under under that as kind of an additional 
additional avenue to diversify their existing portfolio of, of, of hard money loans and one thing led to another and so you start so you were exposed to the note world obviously through this and then you brought him performing or non-performing no well, well, what we were doing were all non-performing and, and okay. frankly his originations the goal was to make them become non-performing even though they all started as performing okay um, but all the product that I was bringing to him originally when we did our first few were all non-performing and, and frankly I don't think I've ever I don't, I don't want to say never, but I don't think we've ever been involved in acquiring things that are that are performing. Because that's more of like a value add type of scenario where you guys aren't people. Correct. That buy it's performing. a cash flow. It's a cash flow situation. You're looking, you know, for for the monthly the monthly nut, uh, as opposed to my scenario where I'm not looking at it. And we we also primarily bought things that had negative equity. So these things that were, even if they had a second, we were buying the first, and they were underwater in the first alone. Hmm. Did he have a track record of doing this? Years prior, or this is no, but he had, he had been he had been in this in this niche of distressed real estate for about thirty years. Yeah, prior, so you know it's it's and been exposed to every angle of the book. Had been a partner in a title company. You know, this was in Boston. Or this was in New York. No, no, this is in New York. This is in New York. Wow, because I'm just I'm surprised only be, not that I'm surprised, but it's I mean I guess if if you understand it, you're you're comfortable with it to a certain point. Plus, you're you're doing all the legal, so you save the money there. But just to talk about how long the foreclosure process takes in New York and I'm, I'm sure then it was longer than it is now like now it's starting to get a little yeah it, it was it was it was very onerous you know there, there were there were statistics at the time that was that was saying that on average even if you did absolutely nothing and again it's hard to create a meeting you know and, and whenever you get involved in these everyone always asks you well how long how long what do we look at and people don't like the answer that that each stage can be anywhere from one month to three years and it simply depends upon how long it takes the bank to get their ass in gear. And, and, you know, sometimes you look at these things and they take every step they possibly can. And the thing is in and out inside of a year and a half, two years, which is what you're seeing more now. And then sometimes you see things where they file a judgment. You know, the one I was, we, we share an attorney among, actually we made sure a couple, but the one specific that we've spoken about who I was with earlier today um, has another one he had asked me just to take a look at. Um, and that, that one, they had actually obtained the final judgment in 2008 or 2009, and it just went to auction December of 19. Why is that? I, they had, Obviously, they had done a modification, tried to do something. Uh, I don't really know how that panned out. Um, I think they may have filed one bankruptcy, but credibly speaking, even with that in mind, there's no explanation for why it takes that long. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, when I look at the auction list come up every week, there's still a huge I'd say the overall majority is you see the loans were initiated 06, 07, yeah. 08, 05. Like there's still a ton, ton. of shit. Yep. And, and a lot of those, over. a lot of those are actually redefaults under prior prior mods. Because remember back 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 in like ten through twelve, maybe even a little bit longer, the mods became permanent after one or two payments. So these things were having the notices of dependency canceled right away. And then everyone would just redefault again. It would take them another four years to start the foreclosure again. So, um, in the early mod days, after one or two payments, they a lot of the time, it. again, each were they it, then sold as reperforming notes, mortgage like loans on the, I'm on the market sure, at that point? You know, there's there was a big market for reperformers. Okay. Um, and then I guess I'm not sure whether from that initial block because I think that was during the Hamp days. Um, but from that initial block, I'm not so sure whether those are being sold as reperformers. But I know now now with the doing, I'm sure as you've been exposed to a bit as the trial mods. Yes. We do the six months of payments and then it it, it, it automatically by execution of law converts to permanency. And those I know that they're 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 looking to shop that six months of on time payments as a new benchmark for a reperformer. Um, when they go look when they try and slice them up and create a new securitization of reperformers. What's your feeling on mods in general? My my opinion is mods don't work. Uh, the, the, it's, uh, I agree. I agree. The, the rate of recidiv recidivism is extremely high. Um, if you look at the underwriting standards, it makes no sense. A lot of the stuff that they're factoring into income is stuff that, from from a new origination standpoint, would never fly. You know, I, I had one that I had been the, the worst example I can possibly pick is is a house in um, Hempstead or Roosevelt. I mean, this is probably seven or eight years ago, but I still remember it today. Is the person had no job. Um, I believe the loan was originated off of an ITIN number, if memory serves me correctly, so they didn't even have a social. 
Um, but they to, rented. Are they allowed to do that? Uh, I think they were back in the day. Yeah, they were le- legally working in the United States, but didn't have a social. Okay. Um, that's what the I ten is. It's okay. like a temporary. Yeah. It's like the whatever the thing. Tax ID right. for people. Um, right. Um, and they had obviously it's a single family house, probably like twelve hundred square feet in like Roosevelt or Hempstead or something. And they were renting out like seven beds, not even rooms, beds, um, which I'm you can't do. Obviously, it's one family in CFO. What and under the HAMP underwriting standards, the way we could get them modified was not contributor income, not from her her partner who was was working, and I think we used his contributor income. We did a lease for seven beds or six beds, and the bank yeah. took that yeah. as part of a mod. They, they, we we were showing the income into her bank account every month. Okay. Um, and they asked, what's this income? We said, that's rental income. I said, well, we need leases. So we had to do seven leases for beds for like $350 a month. And she got modified. And she got modified. Yeah. What is the bank's, I mean, it, it's got to be all about money at that point. What is the bank's motivation in a case like that? They just, I, they want stuff to reperform so they can sell it. They want to reperform so they can keep it. You know, I think that that, that was, I, I was in a different office space at that time for a about a three-year period um and i remember kind of what everything was correlated to at that time and that was during the hamp days so what i imagine what, is what's hamp so for it was uh, it was the modification program that the government put in place when kind of everyone was being foreclosed on left and right and the world was collapsing in 2009 2010 um and they were kind of trying to stimulate and keep people in their houses for lack of a better explanation from my opinion because it was politically expedient you know it, it wasn't really good for politicians that people yeah. thrown out of their houses continuously so they investigated all the large institutions found whatever they did that was wrong and said okay you're a bad boy you know you got to modify this many people and i think this is just hitting those benchmarks and also remember that that these the, the these institutions were not actually the ones who were losing the money when these things went bad they were simply largely servicing these loans they may yeah. have had some equity stake in them how much who really knows but they weren't losing their money; they were losing other people's money. Yeah, so they basically months. gave gave these other people's money away. I'm sure they got payments as a benchmark for hitting their certain, you know, modification, reinstatement, whatever targets, and then just kind of kicked the can down the road. But I don't think there was any motivation other than, okay, well, under the OAG settlement, we have to modify this many loans. So whatever it takes to get it done, let's get it done. Huh. That was that was really that period from like. 2010, 11 through maybe 13, 14-ish was like the Wild West days of modification short sales. It was just, and, and that's why I never really got much. And banks seemed to just be unloading at that point. I remember, anything and everything. I remember the stores where you can go to the auction, you could literally sit there all day just yeah. buying, buying, buying. But, but that's why I never really got involved in short sales because at that point, in order to be competitive at it, you have to be such a bad actor. And it kind of, you know, I never minded buying notes. I never minded that aspect, but the notion of, of of the inherent things to be competitive in short sales at that at that point just really left a bad taste in my mouth, and I just wasn't comfortable with the whole situation. Makes sense. So that was kind of your. Um, that's how you kind of dipped your, your toe into the note game, and then. Just and then obviously we started. Well, concurrent with that is when we started buying more, um, and and obviously I became exposed uh, on top of the, the initial block we bought um i became more exposed to a number of the secondary market servicers and some specific asset managers at certain groups who kind of were like buying the dregs of the dregs that were got assigned two or three layers down the line after mm-hmm. after they got resold off and through dealing with those people kind of i they knew my name they knew i was working with all these people and i got the opportunity to purchase kind of small blocks of, of resi one to four MPLs at that point. And that was kind of from like 11, 12 leading into 13, 14. And then, then we, we took down a few decent sized pools um, and over the next kind of couple of years. And then the price point just kind of became misaligned with the underlying collateral. Um, and we kind of scaled back from any new acquisitions. And that's how I segued into auctions. Probably yeah, I around. guess it's kind of like everything has a life expectancy. Like I always say, it's like you find something that makes money, get really good at it as fast as possible, but start thinking of the next thing to do because, I mean, how long did that time period last where the numbers made sense on the NPLs? I probably, frankly, I probably came into it um, a couple of years after the ideal point of entry, Um, but that's just because I didn't have the exposure and the knowledge and kind of when it was initially becoming something that could be really attractive, I was first learning about it. 
um, by being involved in all these things intimately just because I was doing all the other things associated with it. So I kind of just was exposed to it. And I just kind of became fascinated with it and looked into it more and more. And so probably the ideal point to get into it would have been 2009. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, I did a couple at that point, but really being able to deal with these, these specialty, you know, servicers that were that were buying, um, you know, the, the MPLs en masse, I was probably a couple years, couple years later than I would have ideally been. What was the pricing like then as opposed to what it is now? I don't know what the pricing is is currently at this moment for the resis, just because it's something that I, I think is yeah. right. But but you and I had actually spoken before, um, and and I know that one of, one of the large groups that that does it on mass and buys direct from from HUD on the, the 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 resales on the bulk auctions is Lone Star, which is John Gray, and they're large and focus on distressed assets. Um, and Caliber Home Loans is their licensed service entity, and they were paying for a number of pools into the very low 70s yeah um for for first that a negative equity which in my mind is is absolute craziness and and, and the thing is that they they've ex started experiencing issues with it you know the the biggest problem is when you're buying a whole bulk of these is that the initial few that go very well from the pool are going to drive your initial returns and make everything seem hunky-dory the problem is is that the tail risk is absolutely massive and you're dealing with these straggle stragglers the back end of it and it's always that last 10% of your pool that are the ones that are just nightmare scenarios. And you know, you can underwrite them as well as you want. There's no way around it. That last 5%, 10% is where the risk that's going to drag down your entire returns across the, the pool or it's going to be. So a bunch of different things, just so people understand. When you, when you buy a note, you're essentially the bank. So you are responsible for anything that accrues. For example, if you if a person's not paying their mortgage, they're not paying the taxes, not paying insurance. Yeah. You then have to carry it for that period Correct. of time. Correct. So when we do an underwriting, we add all that into our budget. And and I, I'd like to think when we were doing this on a smaller smaller kind of regional level than, than some people were doing it nationwide, um, that we would underwrite them a lot more intricately than than people would on scale. So like we would run out forever and it's more expensive, but it's the proper way to do it. Um, we had run out actually a foreclosure search on every note before we bought it as if we were the um, as if we were starting a foreclosure from scratch yeah. although our preference was always buying things that were already in foreclosure ideally past the point where the referee's appointed which is kind of at when the referee gets appointed it's called the order of reference if yeah. somebody's looking through it then your prima facie liability is established so a lot of the defenses go out the window at that juncture and this is unique to New York the process I'm explaining but a lot of defenses go out the window. So our preference is always buying post-order of reference because at that point, liability is established and the fault is fixed if the person didn't answer. If the person did respond to the lawsuit, their answer has been stricken by summary judgment. So that was where our sweet spot was, order of reference and later. We would buy before that if we liked the deal, but our preference was after that. Explain to people, even myself, what are the risks that are involved in buying a note pre-referee being appointed? Well, remember in New York, you have the settlement conferences, so you can potentially, if you're in a if you're in a, a defendant borrower friendly jurisdiction like Brooklyn, Bronx, somewhere like that, you can kind of have them keep it in the foreclosure settlement conference part for years, which is the stage immediately before the order of reference, just because they don't like you, they understood how you got into the deal, and they want to prove a point. So if you get a, a vindictive court clerk or something of that nature, they can hold you in that conference part for a while, and you never be able to even get to the point where you can make a motion to appoint a referee. So there's a lot of a lot of things part of that that can nothing that can really go horribly wrong if you've underwritten prop it properly, but a number of things that can kind of drag it out so long that that your entire model gets uh, you know a giant atom bomb thrown right through it. So, I mean, what's by 2010-2012 standards when you were really doing this at scale? What was the range of, of time frame between when how long people could basically stay in their houses for? I, I think the average point at that at, at that time was three years, and that was kind of a statistic that wasn't from me. That was I forget where it was from. It was from somewhere some some uh, 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 legal advocacy group or something of that nature. And this is if you're aggressively pushing it. No, that's if you're doing nothing. That's 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 the median the median time frame. And remember, upstate New York, like even Orange County, Rockland, they go a lot quicker. 
why um why do i see so many of these things that have just been in default for 10 years 12 years i've, I've heard of short sales 15 18 years people haven't paid that kind of stuff the other thing i see is that the courts don't like the older ones so these these older index numbers that are kicking around the court clerks seem to purposely and there's something if you if you get friendly with court clerks and you kind of they know your face and you, you know if you're nice to them and you know the the story and you ask how's this going how's, they tell you about little things like they a lot of the clerks have this thing called dfl dead fucking last which means if they don't like you and your attorney that's, that's rude to them your papers go dfl on the review pile so it seems that like that like a lot of the time that these older index numbers okay that they don't like the fact that these things haven't been resolved so they just kind of you know it's one of those things when people don't like dealing with something and there's something that's easier to do they deal with the thing that's easier first these older ones that are screwed up that have ongoing title issues that have two different foreclosures that are starting that they're now trying to consolidate the actions they take those these aren't they push those to the side and that's why you see i think a lot of these older index numbers are still kicking around because yeah. of course just don't like dealing with them so when you bought these pools was your was your only objective we're going to push the foreclosure and we're going to acquire or did you try to get these things to reperform because there's a there's a number of different strategies people use our, our primary goal was always to never be entitled because for us under our model and the people who are backing us um titles exposure you never know what's involved in these houses especially if there's if there's tenants that were living in there you know previously taking title and being at the risk of being entitled something we never wanted to do. We never wanted to collect rent. We never really wanted to hold these things if we had to ever be entitled. So our ideal scenario was always talk to these people on a more intimate level than, than a, you know, a, another kind of distressed debt firm that's larger and scaled is approaching them. Um, apply leverage as needed and get them to a point where they realize now that the walls are closing in and they have to sell. You know, it's like, like how many wolves are in a room? How many wolves are in a room? Yeah. I don't know. How many wolves are in a room? Six. And everyone's always going to say four, but there's really six that you can have close in, the floor and the ceiling. Okay. So so I, I get that there's going to be one person out there who's always going to say, well, you know, you can have the four wolves close in. Oh, but I think they said wolves. No, no, wolves. <laughs> so, so the point is we always wanted to have all the wolves that we could have close in. So, you know, I we, I we had a deal in Brooklyn, for example, that we knew that the family well, it wasn't a family. It was one guy. It was a family. You have to approach it differently. But the family went to church every every Sunday morning. So he stopped calling us back. We had a deal hammered out. He said he spoke to somebody else who said that 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 he can do better than that, that was, was selling. Well, just went out to his drove out to Flatbush. This is in probably 14, maybe 13. Drove out to Flatbush 5 a.m. on a freaking freaking. Sunday morning, sat on his porch until he came out. And I had a conversation. I said, whoever's telling you that told you the wrong thing. And I have a judgment of foreclosure. I can schedule this for auction right now. I was trying to work with you because we were at a deal that was going to be better for both of us. So now you're not returning my calls. And guess what? He started returning my calls and we got the deal done. But like that scenario um, was, was it was a four family in Flatbush that was being, I'm sorry, it was a two family um, had approved plans for a four. He never converted it. Mm -hmm. um, he was renting it as an illegal SRO to probably 30 people. None of them spoke English, just selling, renting them a bed at a time. Um, and his, he was living in a condo uh, a few blocks away. His brother was running this illegal SRO house. No violations, no nothing. That wasn't an FHA. We actually bought that from Carrington. Um, Carrington, who even has local asset management, which should be a little bit more proactive, um, you and I had spoken about the, the individual in question who kind of runs the... Yeah. Um, and they just, for whatever reason, couldn't get it done. So we paid more than we wanted to... That one we did have to go into title, but we we paid him, I believe it was 50 grand in total, but we also paid a very, very discounted rate for this this very nice grandson in Flatbush. Um, but we did is we gave him 20 grand sign of a title now, but the last thing we wanted to do was be... In landlord tenant court in Brooklyn like say, with thirty Creole speakers. Yeah, how do you deal so, with? So they don't even. And also, by the way, um, you have to pay for the interpreter, I believe. And there's a list of interpreters that are in the court. If they don't have, it's not one of the ones that they have an interpreter in the court. I believe it's the landlord's. I'm not 100 percent on that, but I believe it's the landlord's cost to bring in the interpreter. Imagine thirty holdover petitions. But last thing I want to deal with. Said, so, listen, we're going to give you a fifty, but here there's going to be that other thirty. You need to get them out. In 90 days and you know what one people always want is the universal language yeah. money 
And he, it took him a little bit longer, but we still gave him the 30 grand. He got it, it was like 100 days or something, whatever it was. But, you know, and, and it requires repeated trips going there, repeated, and, and just just applying leverage that on scale, you know, you're not going to get that effect. Mailing somebody a letter saying, hey, do you want to pay your mortgage this month? Well, yeah. they haven't paid for the last 10 years. What do you think the impetus that's going to spring them to action now is, you know? Well, that was, you know, that was my whole thinking because you, you see – if you ever dealt with a short sale, you ever dealt with an auction or foreclosure, and you see how long this stuff takes, I'm thinking like these people, they have to be buying these things at decent numbers because the amount of money that they're losing while this thing sits there, while they're burning whatever the interest is for where the money's coming from, yeah. taxes, I mean, Altasource, whoever's running around to maintain these things, just all kinds of violations, the towns cut the grass, the this and that. I mean, at, for them to be able to make money and be a viable business, which it obviously is, there's got to be. I mean, I think, I think, I think a lot of the people who bought MPLs on scale, it was just a, a shifting, shifting the deck chosen Titanic scenario. Like one, one of the big, I'm sure you've probably seen it too. There's an entity that shows up a lot, uh, CVX, CV. It's like a bunch of entities that are like CV with Roman numerals, okay. LLC. Um, that's all backed by Longview, which is which is an investment firm out of California, okay. who, who's a big buyer of a lot of these. And we can go through kind of the specific entities and which fund it correlates to after. But Longview is now at the point, and they've been they've been at this for about ten years um, in this specific kind of sector of, of Resi one to four nationwide. Um, and they're now they lost. If you look at their year end financials for last year, I believe they they lost nine million dollars, and they have twenty two dollars in remaining remaining um remaining cap it, it, it the, the bottom line I, I forget the specific the, the bottom line is i don't think much of this is viable on scale for, for these these npl pools that do it nationwide that yeah. don't have kind of the intimate knowledge like lone yeah. star again lone stars um having problems with the tail into their pools and for a while they were converting i believe they were converting a lot of their um the the tail end of their npl pools into rentals in the hopes that they can kind of Get cash flow in the interim, and appreciation will knock off what they were unable to take care of. I've actually the, heard a yeah. lot of that lately, and yeah. I've heard that a lot of these guys are they're they're acquiring and then they'll use them as rentals, and they're putting basically anybody in there. But their their plan their plan dessert. was to run it as as a straight MPL play. Okay. But halfway through, when they realized those stragglers that that tail risk, which is an inherent part of consumer NPLs, uh, you know, can't you just package those things up and sell them even at a discount at the end? Like, can't you? If I was looking at this thing and I was saying, all right, I was going to un underwrite 100% of this pool, would I factor in 10 or 15% and say, this is going to be garbage? There's 14 members of the family. They're each going to declare bankruptcy six times. You're going to just have to unload this thing at a loss. Yeah, I think the problem with that is that is that it's hard to get LPs to come in and give you money if you're going to put that into your model. Because then, then it kind of, you know, the returns don't become as attractive. So, you know, you can always, when you add in, you know, we had spoken about it, you yeah. do like, like best case, worst case, and obviously there's when you're doing like like a, a scaled out MPL model, there's there's kind of so many different best case, worst case, best case, middle, worst case of like rehab cost, best case, yeah. middle, worst case of foreclosure time frames, best case, worst case, middle of 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 resale numbers. You know, this you can you can boil that down so many different different ways that it's hard to stress test to factor in everything and also the returns become less attractive when you factor in the absolute worst case for time frames for all yeah. that stuff you know and 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 it's also always better to ask for forgiveness after than to you know as i say so do you think these these big players that bought tons of mpls at the very beginning it was sort of like leverage buyouts in the sense that you just it's all about market timing yeah so these guys yeah. would come in they they had the cash it, the world came to an end they bought a ton of this stuff and then they could just sit on it, wait, and then just trade the paper. Well, I also think that they really thought that they'd be able to kind of work through these pools quicker than they did. Yeah. Um, I think that that on scale, they, they weren't kind of as fully in tune with with how difficult this was going to be and how brain damaging and granular it was going to be. And yeah. like realize it's like these real specifics. boots on the ground. Like you said, yeah, you they, need people to literally sit on a guy's porch until he comes out. And, and that's something. First of all, the the, the the actual the details of those conversations and do them efficiently are something you can't teach. 
the clear title on these things is a nightmare half time. Like one of the things we would do when you try to, we wouldn't just kind of look across the pool. We would actually go through a loan level due diligence on each one. We'd run out, as I was saying, a foreclosure title search as if we're starting a foreclosure from square one. And a lot of times you see like, okay, they missed a judgment creditor, right? Now we can clear up a misjudgment creditor as long as it's not the record owner with what's called a strict foreclosure which is a supplementary proceeding where we basically name the judgment creditor. If it's a little one, like let's say it's a credit card for like 700 bucks or like they didn't pay a parking ticket for 300, just screw it. We'll just pay that just because it's not, it's not an efficient way to operate. But if they get big judgments, like an Amex bill for 20 grand, or, you know, their personal injury judgment for 150, whatever, IRS liens, whatever it is, the way we would clear that up if, uh, without going into too much details by a strict foreclosure. So after the main foreclosure gets finished, then we start a second action and we only name that judgment creditor, say the sole purpose of this action is to extinguish any interest you may hold in XYZ property by virtue of which you held your interest as a judgment creditor. And then what they have is they have 30 days, depending on the way they're served, about a month to answer the lawsuit. And the only real answer they have is by paying the full amount of the mortgage they would never do because then they'd be paying more than what the house is worth to take care of their judgment for whatever it is. So, so, but that, that supplementary action, we can get through quickly. On scale, what I've seen from the bank end, if they're trying to bring that form of an action, after the foreclosure is finished, a year and a half later, they'll first realize they have to do that. Then it'll take them another two years to do it. By that point, probably 30,000, 40,000 taxes will have accrued in the property. And where does that leave everything? And you talk to somebody who's running like one who came out of kind of the CRE world or whatever, like came out of Ex No Moro, like, like a Starwood guy or whatever, who now wants to try his hand at the resi stuff. Well, how the hell is he going to know that? Yeah. And when he's building a model, is he going to run out of foreclosure search of each of the, the 3,000 loans nationwide he's doing it? Even like we, we negotiated a discount rate for a foreclosure search, only like 600 bucks. Okay. We were doing so many of them, we're doing them for like three and a quarter a pop, right? But even when you're doing it on scale still, and then who's going to look at it? You're going to have to have attorneys in each state to understand how to look through that. And it's just not something that that lends itself to do the due diligence you need to, considering the inherent risks, if you're doing it nationwide on scale. So it, it really seems that the, the only way to really do this efficiently, in my opinion, is to be very localized. Very it's, localized, yeah. It's, it's regional, so it's... It's Nassau, Suffolk, maybe the boroughs. Like you just, you can't go that, all. That's over the our place. model. We we never went north of Westchester. Yeah, because you need people that are out there, boots on the ground, seeing the properties, talking to the people. I mean, the amount of paperwork and due diligence and searches that has to go into these things. Like we would, we would look at certain loans, and everything about it is great. We'd strike it off because I knew that judge, and I knew I knew at that moment in time that that judge was not a big fan of lenders foreclosing. Then maybe two years later, the judge changed their tune. But and but judges, you know, people always say that that the legal system is supposed to be perfect. It's not. You know, even on on the federal level, it's better. But state supreme court justices are local elected politicians. You know, when half the time when you go in there, if they had a bad day, well, it's not going to go your way, and it shouldn't work like that. But it does. Yeah, because I mean, people are people. Yeah. They're so, human at the end. Of so the you know, and 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 like we had. So I'm not going to name judges' names, but we had one judge that we never that we never would do buy anything when it was before her. She used to be in LIC. She's now in in Nassau. We had another another judge who used to be in Brooklyn who we would never touch with a ten foot pole. I don't know whether he's still in office or not. But there were little intricacies like that where yeah, somebody out in California who's just looking at a model that their analysts gave them. They're not in tune with with that, and you know. By and large, the, when you, the New York portions of these pools were among the highest dollar component of, of a lot of these pools just because the cost of the real estate is a lot more than it is in like Cedar Rapids or whatever, yeah. you know? So were, you, were people able to buy localized pools in Nassau, Suffolk, the boroughs, et cetera, or were they just you guys buying pools all over the country and then you just had a... So we were, I'm sure, paying a few points premium simply because we were about three layers direct from the bulk sales. Okay. Um, so we we were able the bulk sales were coming through the government at that time. By and large, those were okay. hot. But yeah. remember, there are a lot of a lot of uh, non FHA loans that were still being sold off in the secondary market. Like we we traded a lot with a lot of the ex Carrington loans. Okay. Um, and Carrington had bought uh, New Century after it became insolvent. Um, so they basically absorbed all the old New Century loans. And then we were we would buy uh, loans from Carrington, which never were FHA insured. Um, so th there were a bunch of various sources, but we were always 
several layers removed and we were willing to pay a bit of a premium because we could actually look at it in a manner that was intelligent and be able to kind of evaluate it in a way we understood it. Jesus. So kind of take me through the, you did this three, four years, had a good run, saw the pricing start to get to a point where it just didn't make so sense. We, we still have actually a, a, a whole block from that, that pool as well. Like from I, that time frame? Um, towards the tail end of it, yeah. We've shifted, uh, we bought a number of our, 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 our people out from their positions um, just because it was necessary to do. A number of, are still with us and we're doing some other things with them. Um, but we still have a bunch of them. Um, like actually one of the things that calls I was feeling today is I have one um, that I'm trying to hammer out a deed in lieu on and again they're telling me you know they still want 15 grand the house is worth maybe four and a quarter whatever I'm like that's not happening and, and that they don't realize and oh you can file a bankruptcy well sorry the bankruptcy is no longer available because she's filed two in this calendar year mm -hmm. and we're gonna be able to schedule another auction oh she can do this I'm like you don't understand I own two tax liens in this property under two different LLCs. I also own the mortgage under the third LLC. However you boil it down, I'm gonna have my way. So if you wanna come to the table, I wanna make this something that, that goes cleanly and works for everybody. But if you're gonna kind of keep your head in this, this fictitious reality of the way you think it should work, it's not gonna work at all for that and you're gonna be very, very disappointed when it all's come, you know, all said and done. You must be a very patient man. Nah. <laughs> I feel like you have to, to be in this you kind have of to be deal patient, with this kind of scenario. But you also have to have to be constantly just, just bulldozing. Because and you know what it is that you have to a, a, a threat of doing something holds no credibility if you can't actually do it. Yes. So just to kind of transition a little bit so people get kind of like the, the full gamut of, of what you do and what you know, you have transitioned well, you learned in transition from notes into tax liens. And uh, tax liens almost kind of came about accidentally. Okay. Um, and that was just because when we started having stragglers from our note pool, for a bunch of reasons. One, because we had bought a bunch of things at auction that um, took so long to clear title that by the time we were clearing title, they had already been reduced to tax liens. And we kind of figured we could buy the tax lien and then actually work that with, into, the, into the whole foreclosure bid to get a better deal. Um, and that's a whole complicated process we won't get into today. Mm -hmm. But um, And then also, it was also that we were trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do with these last few straggler notes that are just the people trying everything in the book. And yeah. So they're not winning, but they're still kind of dragging it out. Yeah. So then we thought, all right, let's just buy, stop buying the tax liens on the different entities and stop foreclosing under that. So we're foreclosing on like the same people from three different entities from three, yeah, different, three angles, different angles. And they have no idea what the hell's going on. And we're sending them like, like motions for receivers on single family houses and then they start freaking out and then they finally decide to talk to you. But again, this is all stuff that comes from, you know, years of education, experience, just dealing with this. Yeah, it, it, it becomes se second nature how to skin the cat at a certain point, just yeah. by, by, by lack of necessity, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, this is why I, I always preach education, education, because there's a lot of guys that are out there. Like I've been to not so much seminars, but I'll go to like a local re-event and somebody will stand up and be like, I sell notes, like I buy packages and you can buy all these notes and this and that. And it's it's a very intricate, complicated. Yeah, it, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to sell a guru course or to ask for money or anything. <laughs> You know, but but it, it's it's a lot more complicated than yeah. Than, that's my point. The point is like if you really don't know what you're doing, especially in a place like New York, you could really get yep. hammered, big time. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the tax liens because I think there's a lot of misconceptions with tax liens. Even myself included, when I first started learning about them, it's like oh, tax liens. This is great. You can you can buy this tax lien for like you know five thousand dollars, and you're gonna you might get a house out of it. Which as that as I've learned as I go on. I mean, anything is possible, but it's it's typically not. That's not really what the game is nah, about, and that's nah, not how nah. it works. So, so first, uh, well, how do you want to kind of? This is it, your show. So, so the the first thing is that that you know you're buying down the interest rate. The way if you're buying direct from the auctions, yeah. whatever whatever the county certificate. I guess we should. I, I guess we should explain to people how how these things typically work, right? So it's you're in a, a tax deed uh, county, a, a tax deed state, a tax lien state, or a dual state. Right, and everything's done on a county level. Correct, and so so like for purpose of this, it may be simplest to, to work with Nassau because Suffolk holds their liens internally and then sells the properties. Yeah. City securitizes them all under the NYCTL trust. 
So, so for purposes of this, okay. what does the city do with them? They securitize. They, they them securitize then... them. They sell uh, Bank of New York. It's called the NYCTL Trust, and okay. I think they hold. They 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 create one or two a year, give or take. Um, and, and it's one entity. Yeah, I believe more. I believe Bank of New York administers it, um, and I, I'm sure they. I believe they sell off bonds, kind of as a fixed income sort of position. Oh. And this I, is... I'm not. I'm not familiar with the details of it beyond the fact that it's not accessible to private investors, and actually. A number of the attorneys for the um, they can do that. Yeah, a number of the attorneys for the the city taxing trust who who are private counsel um, actually represent uh, me on other deals involving tax liens, but on my tax liens on the island. Yeah, and I've actually asked them, and I have the relationship with these guys. You know, the the, the retained attorneys for me on a bunch of deals. Can you get me some of these? And like, even I can't do it for you. Yeah. I would because obviously to, to get more business out of you and get the relationship, I can't. Um, so, so they're they're held all in a vehicle that's probably probably they're selling off bonds to fixed income managers. Interesting. Against against the NYCTL trust. Interesting, very interesting. And then, so essentially, either these things get redeemed and they get paid, or the bank actually takes the properties back or auctions them off, whatever. That they, they would take, they'll take them back. Well, if it goes through third party better, or they'll yeah. take some of them back. I'm sure. But you know, wow. with city real estate, first of all, city real estate, you know how valuable it is, and secondly, the tax in the city are lower. Yeah. So that's really, it's a can't lose scenario. Yeah. But you know. So let's let's talk let's talk Nassau County, because I've I've actually I've gone to a decent amount of tax lien uh, seminars. So there's there's villages, okay, incorporated villages and county. So the the vill incorporated villages are done randomly throughout the year. The county is all done in February. Okay. So the the way the can but but the, the 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 process is really the same, right? Whatever the certificate interest is, people bid it down, and the, it's unlike an auction to the to, to one to a hundred. This is hundred to zero. Yeah. So the person that bids the interest the lowest wins. Yeah. Right. And whatever the difference is between the certificate rate and the winning bid is called the differential. So the person who owns the house is still always going to owe. The certificate rate, but the difference between what the investor buys it for, and and the certificate rate is called the differential, which the county recaptures. Yes. So so that almost lends itself to people who are buying certificates and bidding it down to mid single digit digit interest rates. They have to be aggressive. They have to recapture whatever little bits they can get from legal, from title searches, from this, from that, because basically the county is taking the lion's share. Even though they're based, they're, they're reselling it on the private market. So why do people, if the returns are that low, like I've heard of returns going down to the you know zero, two, three percent, why would people go after these things? Do they do it because it's just it's very very safe money? I, I'm not again. I'm not sure specifically what each one gets bid down to, but mm -hmm. the people who do it by and large are also doing other things. They're also yeah. landlords. They also own property, you know, they also are buying properties at auction. And and when they're doing it, first of all, on on a on commercial or vacant land, um, you have t from the time stuff gets without getting into specific, I'll use like simple, simple time frames. Yeah. 21 months from the time you get it. Right. After 21 months, you send a notice to redeem three months later in the event that it's not redeemed you can apply for a deed from the county. Okay. On, But you still don't have title. You, it's not insurable at that point. You still need to bring a bar claims action to be able to, to get a title policy. So that's the other thing is, is you may own the property and have a deed, but no title company will insure it. So in order to clear, so like you'll cut everyone off, let's say there's a mortgage on it or whatever, it's screwed up, you'll cut everyone off, but you won't be able to insure it. So to make it, to, to have marketable title that you can, sell to a third party. You either have to wait a number of years, some title companies will clear it after a long period of time, like five years or something, or you can bring a bar claims action under Article 14 of RAPL, which is the real property proceedings law. And under that, you'll be able to, to have a court order that extinguishes anyone else who may hold an interest in the property. And then from that, you'll be able to go to a title company and says, here, I have this court order, now insure me. So just so people understand, you, you buy the first position tax lien. There's a three-year redemption period before you can go and foreclose. Is that accurate? Uh, in the, in, when in it, cycle, it cycles through, so yes. Okay, so you then can make the motion to foreclose at any given time during that time. That's um, that's on commercial. Well, commercial or vacant land, you okay. can apply directly to the treasurer for a deed. 
Let's assume you just have a house. Like you have a house. A someone, residential. Someone's a res- living in it. They haven't paid their taxes. So residential um, on a county level, you have to foreclose. Got it. So then it becomes the, the investor is grabbing the interest rate. A lot of the people who do it are also attorneys. Um, so they'll apply for legal fees, but they're obviously not writing a check themselves. So they'll apply for legal fees and whatever number they usually put in there gets rubber stamped by and large. Um, so then they're getting the, the title search fees. They're getting the legal fees. They're getting the interest. They're getting the foreclosure fees. And you have these, you know, a, a block of one year of tax arrears for nine grand suddenly balloons to 25000 Would you say the tax lien game is because whenever I went to these things, they would say, listen, tax liens are great. There's a lot of people that do them from out of the country that just want to clip coupon. They're great in other parts of the country. They're just not good in New York. Because it just seems like all the guys that taught tax liens that I dealt with and learned from, they didn't understand the industries in New York. Like New York was just another planet. Yeah, you, you listen. It, it, it's good in New York. You just it's it's so super niche and specific, and you really have to understand the details of how how to make any given deal work. You know, it's you run into these estate properties and to clear title on them, it's a nightmare. And, and you know we have things sitting. I you know I have one one actually that 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 same attorney that that, that mm-hmm. we we share. Um, when I was in court with him earlier on something else, had been working on a property that I had finally cleared. Like took me two years to clear title. That was actually a foreclosure bid on a tax lien foreclosure. Um, didn't own the lien. We the group of people I was affiliated with. We were the winning bidders. Um, during that period, I think one or two other tax liens were coming up to auction. So to protect our first one while we were clearing title, we had to buy those tax liens too. Um, and it literally took two years to clear title on this thing. And this is not like making a phone call every now and again. This is actual several long protracted emails a week going back and forth. Like the Schedule B, it was just a nightmare. Do you see the tax lien game as being a older person's game that's more established that's now you know doing this as part of their portfolio and then most of the time they have some kind of a legal background or legal assistance in-house to make it worth it um i think that i think that it becomes a lot more attractive if you can do legal work at cost um if you have that affiliation with an attorney if you have an existing relationship where they'll take a flyer with you until these things get paid out at the back end I don't necessarily think it's an older person's game. I think that actually a number of the the active foreclosure buyers in, in you know downstate New York actually started doing tax liens, but a while back, it's just a matter of knowing how to how to skin the cat, and you know it's also a numbers game. You can't buy like two as a testing the waters thing because it's you really need an accurate sample size yeah. to be able to determine whether it's viable or not. Yeah, I guess that's kind of. I mean, it, it seems like. I mean, a lot of people do it, but percentage-wise, it seems like it's a small pool because you kind of have to you have to jump in. You can't buy one or two like you hear in these programs. You really have to buy a pool, and you need significant money, resources, and education to pull it off. Right. So, like the faster. the preeminent tax environment in Massachusetts was called Talage, which gives you an idea what the mindset is. But Talage is like actually like the old French for land tax. Okay. Right. So it was the whole peasant days with Marie Antoinette and the serfs and the you know, but. But so they're they're obviously going into it from that perspective originally, but Massachusetts had actually been, there had been lobbying and like and like you know a bunch of justice that whatever it was there was a whole upcry about some of the the tax sales and they were trying to put in place some provision that would gives judges discretion to carve out something to prevent taking properties okay right and basically the guys from Talage who were based out of Boston specifically said we will stop buying. If you create that provision in the tax loan law, because it's an inherent necessary part of our business, um, and obviously they are a big liquidity provider to municipalities in Massachusetts, because that's the whole point of of selling off tax liens. So it really to be able to take the properties is really an inherent part uh, of the whole thing. Hmm. I um, I want to kind of close out with. I mean, you have obviously a ton of education, ton of knowledge on on every. Um, in every respect of single family real estate, where do you, and, and hard money lending and notes, et cetera, where do you see the market now and then where do you see the market going? Uh, you know, I've, I've probably been thinking for a while that I don't know how long this is going to keep going. Uh, but every, every time, <laughs> it's funny, right? Every, every time we're saying, you know, like 
the past three springs, myself and partners, all saying, oh, well, it's slowing down this this spring, and then going right into the summer, it starts heating up again, and it's not it's not dying. So I guess I mean I see it within at specific price points. I mean the high end stuff I've seen die, but now there's I've been kind of searching for that systemic problem. As you and I were speaking about on air, the only systemic issue I see is just tons of cheap capital that are being given to, to novice investors that really don't know what they're doing. And then you see the default rates and stuff yeah, like that. You know, I see like like the the I mean it sounds weird to say like mid market, but probably like the six to nine hundred thousand dollars kind of like a real dead zone. Yes. Um out east, you know, million and a half plus still doing okay. Yeah, you see that? Um yeah. Um obviously the the, the you know the 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 five hundred and lower in NASA always good. The three and a quarter, three fifty in yeah. target areas in Suffolk always good. Um it's that like that like super high end, largely unaffected by normal concerns and obviously not subject to end of FHA or anything like that. It's that middle zone that kind of is is weird, which kind of encompasses a lot of a lot of Long Island. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a bunch of different reasons why. I mean, I think that. Well, I saw everything. I had predicted that everything was gonna go to shit Q4 of last year, and I felt like I saw it going and going and going, and then they dropped rates, right? And then it took off again, only within that kind of like first time homebuyer market. So all of a sudden, you had houses in Brentwood that was selling for three and a quarter renovated, and now selling for like four and a quarter. Because you have people that don't want to spend too much on taxes, right. and you know, first-time home buyers, people downsizing, all compressing in this one first-time home buyer market, and now you just there are no deals there. It's it's impossible. I mean, there's really there's really speaking about no deals. It's just it's impossible to find things. It is hard. I mean, I'm be, like at this point in the but, day, and you, I you're also damage. coming. I mean, for me, the way I normally would look at these things is to an extent from the lean perspective and from the MPL stuff is a little bit more insulated. From the auction perspective is, you know, NASA, I know I've, I've spoken to you it's about, is, is, 300 is dead because there's 300 people. It's one, you know, Suffolk is a little bit easier because it's different times throughout the day and you have to really kind yeah, of be doing- the logistics You know, but this. like we always see at NASA now, you get, you know, it's right across the street from Winthrop and I actually, my, my office is down the street from there. I come out from the city when, when I commute because I reverse commute. Um, and. You see, like, 12, 15 guys in medical scrubs coming out there. And oh, would have been on houses? Yeah, they're no. doctors. They're, swear to God. They're right across from Winthrop. They're physicians there. Yeah. They can come across, and they want to try a house. They have money to burn. And they're, like, overpaying 30, 40, 50 grand for these things. You know, they don't understand the intricacies of it. And I'm sure they're going back to any of the guys who are handing out business cards there saying, I can lend to you, you know, who are all, like, originators for them, you know, all these groups were now popping up out of the blue where does that go uh, i don't know so that's the interesting thing with notes too is when these things get securitized where will they end up when they go bad and you know i don't mind getting into a project that's already been gutted that has permits pulled for it already jumping in and kind of yeah, you know so that's that's the value add that that i see more on the note side i don't you know we would have to have more of a return to normal than i think happened for the standard note business as i as we've been discussing it to to be viable from the way I would look at it. Yeah, I just, I don't see anything that's gonna bring this, I don't see, and I guess, you know, most people never see, but when I look around, I'm like, I don't see anything that's gonna take that segment of the market down to a point where it makes sense. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like every time I'm in an Uber, they get in, they would, oh, what do you do? I'm on the phone, they hear me asking about it, everyone wants, how do I how do I get involved in, in, in yeah. short sales? I'm like, it's really not that somebody, the guy the other day was like, I heard you can buy houses in Newburgh for $1. Like, let me tell you how that works. The city doesn't have a mechanism for actually cutting off their own taxes. You have these things in like Trenton, Camden, you know, Newburgh, where the city says, okay, you fix it in five years, you're gonna get it for $1. Well, they don't even have a mechanism for cutting off their own back taxes. So sometimes you'll buy this house for $1. It's a row house worth 30 grand. You put 20 grand into it, there's 120 grand in back taxes on it, which you still owe. And it's, you know, and, and, and you have people getting into it from that perspective, and it's just, it's hard to find deals now. Education, people, education. If you want to hear people like Jordan, my man Jordan, and others, March 17th, going to be the day. We'll release the venue in a few weeks, but this isn't something you want to get into. It's not for the faint of heart. If you're going to, you got to get the education. You got to come down. This is the real deal. This isn't a fortune builders program where we can get you in there and try to sell you a $50,000 workshop. This is people standing there, up, up there, 
who've done this for 10 plus years, made a lot of money doing it, and they're gonna tell you exactly what they do day in and day out to be successful. Jordan, you're the fucking man. Thank, Thank you for you coming down. Me. I got an unbelievable education. Um, obviously, I'm the handsome home buyer. If you have a house that smells like cat pee, is dated from the 1960s, has six inches of mold on the wall, human waste floating past the basement steps, gas stations, assistant facilities, you name it. If God created it, it can't be moved. I'm quick. I'm simple. I'm a good time. I'm all cash. I want to buy it. Obviously, if you have permit needs, the captain is always here. 516-513-8838. Legalizations, realtors, attorneys, mortgage people, you need us. We're here for you. You do it better, faster than anybody else because we've gotten in more trouble doing it, aka myself, than anybody else out there. Thank you. That's a wrap. Orgulloso estoy de mi herencia judía. Ven y a mi ley, ven, Shlomo, cuando me llamas a la torra, así me llamo yo.